You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Good morning. Our passage today is John 6, through 59. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he is who, except he is who from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that no one may eat of it so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, 
How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on the flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Thank you, Nathan. Good morning, everybody. Hope you're all doing well. It is good to be with you. We are in the Gospel of John this morning, continuing through John chapter 6. So if you haven't yet, I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn there with me. If you're new here, and this is your first time, my name is Joey. I am one of the pastors here. It is my honor to typically preach God's Word when we gather together. So I'm excited to do just that. So before we begin, I just want to pray, actually, because we have a long passage ahead of us. Don't be intimidated. It's going to be okay. I'm not going to preach every single verse. We're not going to be here for hours. We could have been. I was gracious today, okay? So I want to pray, and then we'll go ahead and, and we'll walk through our uh, passage together. So let's, let's bow our heads. Father, we ask that you be with us now. You know what we need. You know those of us who are coming to you hurt and broken, wounded and weary. You know those of us who are just exhausted. You know those of us who, are, who feel shame and guilt. You know those of us who, who just want more of you and, and want to have a stronger faith, stronger relationship with you, God. You know where all of us are in this room right now, and I just ask that by your grace, you would minister to us with your truth where we're at. Give us what we need, Lord. We trust that you'll do that. I trust that you'll do that. I trust that you'll help me preach this now. And Lord, I pray that we leave here um, worshiping you more fervently, desiring you more intensely, uh, quicker to obedience, uh, more quick to surrender, and having more freedom uh, in the life that we find in your son, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. So John chapter 6, the story very quickly is Jesus has fed the multitudes. He has uh, multiplied a few loaves of bread and fish and fed 15,000 people, people during Passover week. And he does that on purpose. During Passover week, remember the celebration of God's release of the people of Israel from slavery, from Egypt into the promised land. And while they're on that journey, he, you know, remember God historically fed them manna from heaven. So Jesus now is feeding the people bread. Jesus is saying something about himself in that miracle. In that miracle, he's trying to communicate something. And what is it? He calls that miracle a sign. A sign points to something beyond itself. It's a symbol. It's a message. The miracle is a message in and of itself. What is Jesus trying to say about himself in this story? He's trying to tell us that he, in him, in relationship with him, is where we find our our soul's satisfaction. Just as we would hunger for bread, just as we would... uh, thirst for water, you know, we find our soul's satisfaction in Jesus. He is the feast. He is the abundant bread from heaven. So if you're here and maybe you're new to Christianity or on the outside looking in, curious about it, Christianity is not behaving well. And Christianity is more than I'm forgiven. That's like where it starts. But we are forgiven so we can have profound, rich relationship with our Creator who has now reconciled us through His Son, Jesus. 
So we have an opportunity, an invitation really, to have a, to have a salvation experience that is rich and full and full of joy and full of life. That is what Jesus wants to convince us of about himself. He is that experience. That's what relationship with him is like. So Jesus, you just heard, read to you, he's in the synagogue in Capernaum. These crowds are looking for him. They find him. They're railing him with questions. And then he, as a rabbi, as a teacher, monologues. And that'd be very common in the synagogue. So through this monologue and this question and answer time that Jesus has with these, these people who are uh, following him, we can see three things about this bread. Jesus says he's the bread of life. And so we see three things about this bread. First, there's a demand of this bread. This bread comes with a demand for each and every one of us, a requirement for each and every one of us. But also, there's grace in this bread. We're going to find out more about that. And lastly, we're going to talk about the practicality of the bread. Okay, so the demand of the bread, the grace of the bread, the practicality of the bread. So go ahead and jump in verse 26 with me. It says this, uh, the crowds, they finally find Jesus. It says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So remember, in this time, in ancient times, your next meal was not guaranteed. Uh, eating meals in this time, like food is scarce. There's a lot of variables that go into whether or not you're going to have your next meal. Was there a good harvest? Has it been good weather? Has it rained lately? Is everybody doing their part in the community to bring about your next meal? Like food scarcity in this time is real. And Jesus is talking about a real reality saying, you're coming to me. I just fed you a lot of bread. You're coming to me because you know that I can give you your next meal. And I mean, that's a real point. That's an understandable point. Food scarcity is real in this time. So it makes what Jesus say next really eye-popping. He makes a really strong contrast in verse 27. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, your next meal, right? Food. But for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So Jesus makes the contrast here. What's the contrast? As much as we'd work for our next meal, work towards our next meal, that's how we should consider pursuing this bread of life. Said differently, as much as our bodies crave food, our minds think about food, as much as we protect our time to eat, position ourselves to be sure we eat our next meal, put forth, Jesus is saying, put forth that kind of effort, that kind of intentionality into eating the bread of life. So the intensity of acquiring food in a scarce environment must be applied to finding and feasting on the bread that endures to eternal life. So the crowds then ask a very logical question next in verse 28. They say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Meaning, okay, that sounds great. What does God want me to do? What does God require of me then to, to, to have that bread of life? That's, that sounds amazing. What do we do? Jesus answers in verse 29, this is the work of God. Here's what he requires. That you believe in him who he has sent. That's what God wants for us, to believe in Jesus, his claims, what he says about himself. Now, you might hear that, believe in the one whom he has sent, believe in his claims, believe in his declarations, and you might think that sounds like nothing, like we do nothing. To believe means, oh, we do, we just, okay, fine, I, I agree. I subscribe. Okay, got it. You know, we think that, but that's not right. 
That's not, that's, a, that's not the right way to think about this. Uh, Tony Evans, the preacher, he, he describes faith, belief like this. He says, faith is living as if God is telling the truth. Did you catch that? That's pretty, I think that's pretty good. Faith is living as if God is telling the truth. I like that. So that doesn't sound so easy, does it? That's not as easy as just doing nothing or as like agreeing mentally. The work that God requires to believe in the one whom he has sent means that we take Jesus' claims that he is God, that he is Lord, that he is ruler, that he is sovereign, that true life is only found in him. All those kinds of things that, he, that go along with his divinity, that he is God, it means that we bring those claims so seriously to our hearts, so deeply to ourselves, that we build our life on them. It means you and how you set up your life and how you live your life. You're testing Jesus' claims to see whether or not they are true. You're living as if Jesus really meant it when he said, I am God, you can trust me. I am God, you will find life only in me. I am God, I keep my promises. So to believe is to trust is to live in a way that Jesus' claims must be true or else. In college, I went to a Christian college, and we had chapel a few times a week, and my college would invite politicians to come and speak. And this one politician uh, was, you know, a little skeptical of, of it all. You'll find out why in a second. His rule of life, he said, here, adopt this rule of life. Here's what you should do. Here's what you do. He said, always get even and always get a prenup. <laughs> That's what we said in chapel. And so we're like, oh, okay, that's a head scratcher. But what's your rule in life? What's your rule in life? Like, what's the mantra that you're going to live by? That you're going to run all your decisions through, all your actions through? What are you going to build your life on? Try adopting this rule of life. Jesus is God. He actually is God. Every decision, every act, is run through this question. Is what I'm doing, what I'm thinking, what I'm deciding to do here, is it affirming or denying that Jesus is God? I think most of us in here are Christians. Most of us in here believe that Jesus is God, but it is possible to functionally live like you have no faith at all. In our day-to-day goings, in our decisions, in our actions, in our thinking, to functionally exist as atheists. Like, that's so possible to say one thing, but our lives communicate a totally different thing. Does your life comprehensively affirm or deny that Jesus is God? Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 3 that in the last days, which is now, that people will have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. Meaning, say all the right things. Check all the right boxes in your belief system, but have lives that lack power. Lives that are just no different than than anyone else. So the work of God is to believe that Jesus really is who he says he is, to live like God is actually telling the truth. Press into that test that, live like that, rely on him like he has to actually show up, and he will because he is God. In Matthew 11, it says this, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, 
like this. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, what this verse means is, if you're to live as a follower of Jesus and live in the kingdom, it takes intensity. It takes intentionality. You have to seize it. You have to go after it like you would your next meal if you were starving. Hebrews 4 says, strive to enter that rest. So believing in God, it doesn't mean do nothing. It means live like he is telling the truth. So I know that's high pressure. (laughs) That might stress some of you out, and I get it. Here's what happens, okay? When you begin to live like that, like God's actually telling the truth and he has to show up and he has to come through that Jesus actually is God and he reigns and rules and he's kind and he loves me and you put that to the test in your life, eventually what's going to happen is he'll show up and your heart will be persuaded. Like deep down in a subjective level, your heart will be persuaded that he's telling the truth, that he actually is God, that this is all real, that this is all like the only way to live and peace is what's going to be transferred to you. In that same passage where Jesus says, the violent take the kingdom, like intense people are the ones who enter into the kingdom, just a few paragraphs later, he says, come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You will find rest for your souls When you understand that true peace is at the end of that pursuit, it transforms the pursuit from a duty to delight, right? When you, when you, when you experience that firsthand once, and then you do it again and again and again, and the peace of God that is in Christ is verified over and over again. It really makes that intense pursuit, doing the works of God, the things that He requires, pursuing the feast that is in Jesus, it really does transform it from something that feels like what I have to do to something that, man, I, I want to do this. I need to do this. This is the only way to live. This is the only way that makes sense. Everything else is settling. Everything else is a counterfeit. Like this is it, you know? So it sounds intense. The demand of the bread, it, it sounds intense on the front end, and it is, but if you yield yourself to it, if you, if you respond to the summon of God, and he's calling you. He's saying, come on into this. Feast on Jesus. Believe, it, believe in who he says he is. Let that change your life. Bring it into the center of your life and let him build from there on out. You won't regret it. You won't regret it. I was talking to a guy yesterday. He was at, he was not, you know, he'd never been to church in his whole entire life. And he said, why did you pick Christianity? <laughs> you know, and I, we had that conversation and he said, well, it's just not urgent right now that I find it. It's not, it's not really important. I'm young, and maybe I'll figure out later on when things get more serious, but right now it's just not pressing issue. And I was like, Lord, what do I say to that? You know? And this illustration popped in my head, okay? I said to him, if your friend walked up to you and, offered, and said, hey, I need $5,000 for my startup company, would you be willing to invest? And you said, no, I can't, not right now. I don't think that's the right decision. It's not really something I need to do right now. And 30 years later, when you found out that that company was Under Armour Sports, what would you think? What would you feel? You'd feel massive regret. You put it off, 
You didn't make that decision. And years later, you find out, man, what have I missed out on? The bread of life is calling each and every one of us to find our soul's satisfaction in Him. Our jobs won't do it. Our spouses won't do it. Our, you know, whatever vision of the good life that we have, security and comforts and success, those things won't do it. They don't last. They don't endure. It's not the bread that endures forever. Only Jesus is. Build your life on Him. He is the only short and steady foundation. That's the demand of the bread. To believe that Jesus is actually telling the truth, that He is actually God, sent from God. There's life in Him. Okay. So if you answer that call, you're going to find out that that this experience of feasting on Jesus, man, it's incredible. And Jesus, um, now he goes into a monologue and teaches about his grace, this radical grace of God that is communicated through Jesus and that's, that's um, exemplified in the relationship between father and son. So this is what Jesus wants us to be floored by and experience, okay? So go to verse 32. It says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave to you the bread of heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread <clears throat> from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is saying, remember that bread that Moses got in the wilderness, that manna? Well, God provided that and not Moses, and God now is providing an even better manna, an even better bread. The true bread from heaven is now before you. And so they say in verse 34, Sir, give us this bread always, he says in verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's making it abundantly clear. He is God, sent from God, the extension of God on earth. He alone will give you life. He's better than the bread that perishes, but you have to come to him. Throughout this passage, he says, you have to come to me. You have to believe in me. You have to look to me. Okay, so there again, that's the demand of the bread. But now Jesus he makes a stipulation, okay? I'm going to teach for a little bit here, okay? So listen up. He says this in verse 37, the first part. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Did you catch that? All that the Father gives, approves of, will come. Verse 44 says this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So Jesus is teaching that the reason we come and believe and look to Him is because the Father has chosen us, because the Father has appointed us to salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, if you were to go read that, it says that we were predestined before the foundations of the world, that we were chosen, appointed salvation by the Father. We were predestined for adoption. So that's what He says here. Any of us who are saved, any of us who come, who answer that call of the bread, that's only by God's grace. It's only by His call. It's only by His choice and His power and His draw. But there's also a promise packed within this truth. Look at verse 37. It finishes and says this. Jesus says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 44 finishes saying, I will raise him on the last day. Verse 39 brings all of this together, this choice, this draw, this, uh, this promise. Look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So it's not only that God chooses us, 
God draws us, that he woos us to himself, it's also that now he promises that he will sustain us and help us persevere to the end, that what he finished, he will start. Romans 8 says that those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. This, friends, is the radical and overwhelming full picture of the grace of God from the beginning to the end. It's all God. It's all God. Now, there's actually even more grace to be found. It gets even more radical. Look at verse 33. Jesus says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And this is expanded in verse 38. Look there with me. Jesus says, For I have come down not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What Jesus is communicating there, if you're listening and paying attention, is that he has every right to stay in heaven. Jesus is the prince of heaven. That's his country. That's his home. That's his birthright as the son of God. Like that, that's his to have the glories and the privilege of heaven. Yet he willingly leaves that place of glory to come to us. Did you catch that? He comes to us. He's commissioned by the Father, sent by the Father to us. Now, there's one little phrase that appears there in verse 33. It says, he has come to the world. In verse 51, it says that he is the living bread that comes down, and whoever feasts on him, he will give the life, he will give life to the world, of the world, it says there in verse 51. Now, of the world, of the world, that, that phrase pops up over and over in the Gospel of John. I want to remind you that when Jesus talks about the world, when John writes about the world, that idea is uh, negative in its, its connotations. It refers to those of us who are lost, who are helpless on our own, who are even hostile to God. We didn't want anything to do with Him. We rejected Him. It really means that we are His enemies, that we are not reconciled to Him, that we are desperate in the dark. That's what the world means in the Gospel of John, and that's what Jesus left the glories of heaven to come to, to helpless, hostile, desperate people like you and like me. Grace, not just chosen, not just drawn, not just promise that he's going to carry us to the end, but all of that was accomplished by Jesus coming and being and coming to the dirt and then dying a death that is less than human for us, his creation. So when you come to the bread of life, you are coming to a Savior who left the glories of heaven, obeyed the Father willingly, initiated a rescue mission to us who are totally lost and in the darkness, and then by God's grace were chosen in Christ, drawn, He never lets us go, and then He finishes what He started again. From beginning to end, it's all God's grace. From head to toe, you're covered in God's grace. When you come to the bread of life, you're approaching a God who chooses you, loves you, is committed to you, has come for you, and died for you. First John says it like this, we love, 
We come, we respond because He first loved us. Romans 2 says it's God's kindness that has led us to repentance. It's God's grace that has pulled us out of the pit and brought us to Him. If you explore this, think on this, meditate on this, yield yourself to this reality of God's incredible grace, do you know what's going to happen to you? It will wreck your ego. Because you are the world that Jesus came for. You were the helpless and hostile person. You were the person he needed to go to full extent to save. And so look, if God has rescued you, rescued you, he rescued you. If God hadn't done that, you would have lived your life in the darkness and you would have loved it. If God didn't pledge to bring you to the resurrection, to the end, you would have shipwrecked your faith already. So the longer you walk with God, listen, the longer you and I come to know God as we walk with Him, what should happen is knowledge and awareness of His goodness, His mercy, His grace, that should be amplified and we should become more aware of our helplessness and of our great need from him, for Him. That's what, should, that's what should happen as we walk with Him. His grace is magnified, our desperate need is magnified. That's what should happen as we walk with Him. So then what this means is you should be growing in humility over time, not pride. Listen, it makes absolutely no sense for Christians to be proud, ever. That makes no sense. Especially Christians who've been going at it for a while, we should be the most humblest of people because we should know over the course of time how much we need that grace. So you and I, we can take credit for nothing in our lives, that we are here today, that any of us right now are here today with any extent of wisdom, any measure of goodness, any level of maturity, if any of us have anything like that at all, that is only because of God's grace. That is literally a miracle that has happened in each and every one of us. And if you get this, you'll never look down on another person and you'll never get puffed up about yourself. You'll never grow frustrated at the lostness and confusion of the world because that would be you without God's grace. And you and I, if we get this, we would say along with Paul, I am the chief of sinners. Therefore, if I can be saved, if there's hope for me, there's hope for anybody. And so we never look down on other people. That makes no sense for a Christian because we of all people know that we've been touched by God's mercy. And you'll never grow frustrated with another believer. You'll never look down on another person in the church due to their weakness, due to immaturities, because the only reason that you're any, any steps further, the only reason why you've grown at all is because of God's grace. And so you'll never take credit, you'll never boast, you'll never point people's attention to you, you'll never fish for compliments because God gets all the credit, all the attention, all the glory, every praise in our lives because the only thing separating me and you from anybody else is God's grace. That is it. This is the grace of God that's found in the bread. That bread that's calling you, this is what you'll find. You'll be transformed. You will be changed. So then come, 
and believe and eat of this bread. So now here's my question I want to end with. What does it mean to eat this bread? What what does feasting look like? Jesus, I think, shows us a few ways in this passage. This is the practicality of the bread, okay, the how-to of the bread. So after the people hear these massive claims Jesus is making, they say in verse 42, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So he replies, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Jesus is telling these crowds who are interacting with him in this synagogue that as long as you refuse to believe in me that I am God, that I am sent from God, then you will miss out on the Father because I am the very extension, the very representative of the Father. Look no further than Jesus to know who God is. John 14 says it like this. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, if you had known me, you have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him because you have seen me. So here's what I want you to do. Okay, Jesus is saying, if you want to know who God is in a profound, meaningful way, then you fix your eyes on me. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that because I am God. Look no further than me to know who God is. So here's what I want you to do. This is the practicality of the bread. I want you to think about Jesus in all of his facets. I want you to think about his character that's on display in the accounts we have written of him. I mean, when you look at Jesus... If you, I don't know if you've ever done this. If you just study his humanity and look at his interactions, look at his life, it is the most beautiful life. He is the most beautiful soul that you will ever know. Let me just read a few things that Jesus does. He doesn't take himself so seriously that he can't play and laugh with little kids. He's comfortable with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. He confidently without shame, confronts corruption and injustice, especially of the religious sort. But then he weeps over those people as he looks down on the city of Jerusalem. And in his last breath, he prays for his enemies, those who are killing him. Really, when you look at Jesus, there's no one like him. You look no further than Jesus to know what God is like. You want to have an incredible walk with God? Study Jesus. Look to him. Look at all the facets of who he is. That's the first practicality is look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Get to know who Jesus is. Read of Jesus and be floored by how incredible his character and personality is. Now, here's one more dimension of this I want to add now. Philippians 1.19 says this. Paul's writing, he says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit, of Christ Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. You ever thought about that? Like sometimes in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity who indwells believers, he sometimes is called the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of Christ. That's head scratch. Like what's that all about? What does that even mean? What this means 
is the Spirit shares the same characteristics, the same personality of Jesus. Jesus, who is in the presence of the Father, how do you know what His character is like? Well, His very character, His very presence, His very personality abides within you. As you fellowship with the Holy Spirit and walk with the Holy Spirit in your life, you know in a real, personal, meaningful way who Jesus really is and what He's like because He literally abides within you. So fix your eyes on Jesus and fellowship with Jesus through the Spirit. That's one way, okay, a real practical way that this all catches up to our heart and becomes real for us. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Secondly, look at verses 51 through 55. He says this, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I, give, and the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man Give us his flesh to eat. So Jesus, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Now, Jesus is not talking about the Lord's Supper here, although there's some associations with it. You, shouldn't, you should think about that later on your own time. But he's not talking about the Lord's Supper here. He's... Uh, using a metaphor, eating his body, drinking his blood, to talk about uniting yourself with him, taking him in, having a relationship with him. Specifically, taking in what? His body and blood. Now, what does that obviously bring to mind? His death, the cross. Practicality of the bread. The second way that this all becomes real for you is you meditate on the cross. You think about the gospel a whole lot. I was talking years ago when I first started out in ministry, I was talking to a pastor in rural North Carolina. He's been laboring in this church for 30 years, and he's a good preacher and an excellent pastor. In 30 years, he's laboring in, in, you know, in the middle of nowhere, really. No accolades, no popularity, no podcast. And he's just literally pouring himself out through years of strife and discord at times, leading his church through that and just preaching faithful, good sermons all the time. And so I approach him, I'm like, how do you do it? Like, what's your secret? How have you made it this long? Do you know what he told me? I was like ready for some secret sauce, you know. He says, just preach the gospel to yourself every day. Just preach the gospel to yourself every day. Did you know that the gospel is a portal into power and encouragement? You can feast on and meditate on the crushing of Jesus' body, the shedding of his blood daily, and it will actually nourish your soul. We never graduate from the gospel. You know that? You never get over the gospel. It's, it's what saved you, but it's also what sustains you. You never graduate from the gospel. Have you noticed if you open up your Bible, your New Testament, and you put your finger on any page, Somewhere you're going to find the gospel. Somewhere you're going to find Jesus' death as if like every command is grounded in his death, as if the authors of the Bible just bring everything together in the reality of the gospel and Jesus' death. Like the apostles never got over the gospel. It was on every single page they spilled ink on. We should never get over the gospel. It really is a portal into glory. 
You're sustained by the gospel. It's the main course. So supplement it. Sure, read some books, listen to some podcasts, whatever, but never stop preaching the gospel to yourself. It's like a diamond that you can appreciate its many angles, its many dimensions. It testifies to God's love for you, His faithfulness to you, His goodness, His wisdom. In Romans 8, Paul says, if He, God, did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, that's the gospel, that's the death of Jesus, he says, will He not also with us graciously give us all things? You see what Paul is doing there? He's literally using the gospel, the death of Jesus, as a portal into more worship, into more confidence, into greater realities. We never, ever get over the gospel. It leads us into deeper worship. So when's the last time that you actually sat and thought about and examined the gospel? Jesus' death in your place for you. It's incredible. When's the last time you let it demolish your ego demolish your idols and move you into thanks and move you into worship. Preach the gospel to yourself. And I promise you, friends, you'll have a feast on the bread of life. Third practicality, okay? 56 to 58. Whoever feeds on the flesh, on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the Father, as the, here, I want you to pay attention to these details. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. So to keep with the metaphor, to consume Jesus is to make him a part of you, isn't it? Uh, like food, just as your food and its properties become a part of you for better or worse. So when you take Jesus' life into you, his life becomes a part of you. But if you catch the details here, he says, the living Father is in me, and then I can be in you. So if you understand the succession here, that means that literally the Father, the Son, the life that is shared between the two can be in you. That's pretty incredible. So what does that mean? What does that mean for the shared life between Jesus and the Father to become a part of us? John 14 says this, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home in him. John 17, I may know to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love, that, look, this is incredible, look at this, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This sounds like, this can't be true, right? This is like scandalous. Jesus is saying the very love that God the Father has for God the Son is placed on you and then lives in you. Wow. So how is that possible? How is it possible for that life source, that love source to be within us so that it serves us as this infinite resource of living waters that well up in us and heal us and comfort us and empower us? How is that possible? This is why Romans 5 says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who indwells in us. John 16, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For I, I do not go away. The Helper, the Spirit, will not come to you. 
the, jo- the, Spirit, the, the job of the Holy Spirit, why does he exist? Why is he indwelling within us? His job is to press deeply and personally into you the love that the Father has for the Son that is now yours rightfully. Augustine, an early church father, I think he makes a pretty convincing case that every time we see in the Scriptures where it says the Father loves the Son, uh, that there's this love between Father and Son, we don't see the Holy Spirit in those passages, do we? He's, like never, he's rarely mentioned by name, and St. Augustine, the early church father, says that love, that's the Holy Spirit. What proceeds from the Father to the Son is love, that's the Spirit. So literally, I think Augustine's right. So literally, the love of the Father has made its home in you, His home in you, in the person and in the work of the Holy Spirit. That's His job, to convince you how much God loves you. This is the practicality of the bread. Fellowship with the Father. Fellowship with the Son. Fellowship with the Spirit. Know the triune God so that His love can be made known to Live like Jesus is telling the truth. And if you do, you're going to get lost in a deluge of God's grace. An amazing grace. You get in on that in the practicality of the bread. Preaching the gospel to yourself. Fixing your eyes on Jesus. Fellowshipping with the triune God. So what I want to do now I want to close this in prayer. I, want, I have a prayer written here. I want to pray this, and I want you to agree with it in the silence of your own heart. So let's go ahead and close our eyes. I want to pray this for us now. It's just a very simple prayer, but pray this in the silence of your heart. Lord, increase my faith so I trust you. I want the bread of life. Help me to do the work that you require to believe and to trust. Give me a passion for you. Make me hungry for you and arouse my thirst for you. Lord, level me with your grace. All I have, all I am, all I'll ever do and ever be is because of your grace. Thank you for choosing me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for bearing with me till the end. Eliminate all my pride and all my self-elevation and make me humble towards others. Make me humble towards you. Lord, teach me your love for me. Make known to my heart how great your affections are for me. Cause rivers of living water to rise up inside of me. I let your love into me, into my being. I want to live within your love, Father, Son and Spirit, help me to walk in the Spirit and set my mind on the things of the Spirit. Lord, as I feast on you, fill me, empower me, satisfy me, strengthen me, grow me. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.